Who's this? Oh, you're an entrepreneur? Oh, you're a real estate investor. Oh, you're trying to learn from those who did it. Well, come into the lab then. Put your white coat on, gloves on, notepad, and let's build y'all. Real estate experiment, what is happening y'all? Today we have Tosin Oduwale, my man. Thank you for reaching out to me, man. And it's always a pleasure. I'm very excited to hear, uh, you know, a Tosin's story because, you know, you started getting into it, but we got to keep it right online, man, and, and really uh, find out about who it is that you are today, how you even got into real estate, but it's not even just about real estate. I think it's about our journey. I know you're an entrepreneur. You do a lot. I, I checked out your TED talk, TEDx talk. That was great. Uh, I'm, I love looking to my people. So, so I guess you were telling me a little bit offline, but I want you to share with the community, you know, what was the beginning of your, your, your real estate journey and, and, and how did you even get a little bit of a taste, taste of it? Yeah, well, I mean, it really, I got accredited to my parents. Um, both my parents came to the United States from Nigeria. So my dad came here when he was 17 years old. Um, you know, him and my grandfather, they had this great idea that he was going to be an architect, right? Because, you know, he yeah. knew how to draw very well. And they said, you know, let's send him to a, a, you know, a design school in the States. So he came here when he was 17 years old. Um, went straight into the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, he did that for a few years until, you know, I think he got his bachelor's there when he was like 21. He decided that he didn't want to do architecture anymore, that he wanted to go another route. So now he has this design degree that he doesn't want to use or can't use. So he went to uh, University of Illinois Champaign to take another bachelor's degree in, I believe, information technology. So uh, he did that. Uh, my mom came over to the country around the time that he was there. Um, and they were living in Champaign, Illinois, got married, um, had my older brother, my eldest brother, and then two years later had me and they moved down to St. Louis, Missouri. And so as far as real estate, I, I, I'm not going to say that I got into real estate. I feel like I was birthed into it. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> because sure. I, as a kid, my, my, you know, my parents, when they came here, their main goal was to run a business or acquire assets or do something that was more in their control. So by default, that's all I saw growing up. You know, um, mm -hmm. they weren't necessarily trying to teach me the real estate business or trying to teach me business in general. Like I, we didn't have conversations where they sat me down and said, okay, Tosin, this is how you do a balance sheet. This is how you know what an asset is. None of that happened. Yeah. But in just, you know, being in such close quarters with both my parents and always, you know, going to their offices and, you know, them just bringing me along because they didn't really believe in daycare at that time. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, African parents don't really believe in daycare. That's you're, right. <laughs> with them. You're going to be with them wherever they're at. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No doubt. No so, doubt. Yeah. So, For those of you listening, we got uh, Tosin is it, what? And you're national, originally uh, Nigerian. Is that, that correct? You're first generation? So, first so generation. We, we all know as well, myself being first generation Congolese, we all know about the, the I, I think what I really do appreciate Tosin is, is the grit. And the, and the hustle and the, the kind of just the, the go-getter mentality that a lot of, you, you see that a lot with a lot of immigrants because they come here and they come here with a purpose. And so I think we, 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 we technically kind of have an advantage as well, I would say, to, to a certain extent, because we, we see how much hustle, we're not ever complacent. So, but I, I want to talk a little bit about that, man, like your, 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 your childhood um, growing up. So you said it wasn't, deliberately taught to you real estate per se but you were submerged in it you want to talk about a little bit in the beginning what 
you know, how you were submerged in that environment. I know you, you started getting into uh, what, uh, was it your mother or your grandmother who was doing uh, property management? No, my father, yeah, so my father was the first one to actually buy property. Okay. My mom, you know, after he had his first failure with his office space, mm-hmm. kind of jumped in with like residential property and she would just self-manage it, you know? Oh. And so, um, you know, she'd bring me along when she was going to go pick up the rent checks from the tenants and, you know, sometimes, mm-hmm. You'd be out there banging on the door and they wouldn't answer. They wouldn't open. They're trying to like duck and dodger and stuff like that. And I'm just, just watching, not knowing, not understanding. Okay. This is a tenant that's probably going to get evicted soon. And mm-hmm. this is my mother, the property owner trying to collect the payment. And so just thinking, it was just like, yo, I don't even want to be here. I want to go home and play Sega Genesis and Nintendo. <laughs> and so, and so kind of just seeing her, you know, she, she would only buy single family homes in the quote unquote hood. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, she'd fix them up a little bit, buy them cheap, fix them up and rent them out to like, you know, elderly people. Yeah. She always hired people from the neighborhood to do the work on the property stuff mm. all the time. So whether the grass needed to get cut, she was going to go hire the guy that may be standing outside of like the fish uh, market or something or the, or the corner store. And she'll say, hey, you want to make 25 bucks? Come cut this grass. So she was always trying to kind of like, you know, make sure everybody in the area uh, knew who she was and knew that, you know, they could come and get some work, even if it was like odd jobs. Yeah. So that, that's something that even to this day, my mom has always really, really tried to share her, her success with people in the area, whether they had like felony backgrounds, criminal backgrounds, like she didn't care. She's like, if you can do the job and I can trust you and you can come on time, then you got it, you know? So I, I like that a lot, Tosin. I, I mean to cut you off, but I, I, I just want to piggyback on that real quick because I, I think we don't talk about that enough about how investing in a community allows other other people within the community, you're giving them opportunities. It's, it's essentially, it's a business, right? And I think uh, we talk about real estate a lot, but we don't talk so much about the opportunities that you can give to to the, to the folks within that community, uh, value add and increasing their, their their living, and at the same time giving them jobs, which I do, which I which I think is remarkable. Uh, but but I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off there. It, it's really just kind of like the <laughs> down effect because if you own property, there's so many things that don't necessarily have to do with real estate that are associated yeah. with real estate. And so you know, there's so many other industries that owning real estate can kind of put you in indirectly. And so, you know, anything that she didn't know how to do, she always said, look, if I don't know how to do something or I'm not strong enough to do something or not capable enough, let me find who's in the area that I can pay to help me out. And then we can have that relationship, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a relationship business. That's for sure. (laughs) Awesome. So, so fast forward real, real quick, because I know, and and don't get humble on me. I know you guys, you know, like to get humble, but, but Tosin, I guess fast forward a little bit, maybe midway through or even to where you are today. I mean, I mean, you told me you're 34 years old, you know, relatively younger when it's funny because I'm always surrounding myself with, with, with folks who are doing, you know, 10 X what I want to do. And it's fascinating to, to see, um, you know, uh, I think the millennials and a young, younger generation, and yes, you are still a millennial fact check. And I believe it goes still to, th- th- uh, to 37, but yeah, no, people slip up on that. Sometimes I'll, I'll talk about my, I don't know. I'm a millennial too. <laughs> We're all millennials. Yeah. So, so tell me about what, what that's been for you, what, what it's been like kind of up to where you are now how, in your real estate from the beginning when you were young to where you are now and how you got introduced to it. So trial and error, um, my, keep in mind, even though my parents had dibbled and dabbled in real estate my entire life, 
They didn't necessarily teach it to me, right? They didn't mm. sit me down and say, this is how you do it. Um, and then also they were in usually single family residential real estate. Yeah. When I got older, because, you know, I, I went to boarding school in Europe and then I, I later went to Nigeria, finished off my high school in Nigeria. I was there for five and a half years. Wow. So when I came back to, you know, I wanted to get into commercial real estate, you know, like apartment buildings, office space, stuff like that. And so I knew nobody, parents included, that had really been in that, in that niche of real estate that could teach me something. So I literally was just trying to, like, figure it out and find it out on my own. And Tosin, let me, let me stop for a second right there. Why did you originally, because a lot of us, we, we, we see a lot of real estate, and I'm glad you said that because not all real estate is equal. And we're going to talk about that in a second. So what was the draw to, to multifamily and commercial? And for those of you listening, I think my, most of my community knows, but for, for those of you who are listening and tuning in, uh, you know, residential is usually one to four units. Any, anything above four units is considered commercial. So what you have said, Tosin, hey, listen, I want multifamily or commercial. So it was, I guess this is where I'll give myself some credit for having some type of creativity, right? <laughs> I looked at it and said, okay, my mom is beating down the door of mm. this four unit to collect, you know, four rent checks from four people and two of them are not answering the door, right? So she's really only getting paid twice this month. So if I had an apartment building where there's 30 units or 40 units or 50 units, if five, six, seven, eight, nine people, you know, can't pay me that month or I got to go through an eviction process or whatever, I'm still getting paid from the other 35 or 40 doors. And so it's, it's kind of like a risk mitigation because in real estate, that's going to happen. You're, right. you're going to have tenants that are not going to pay you. It's part of the business, right? Yeah. No matter how good you screen, no matter how high the credit scores are, you're, you're going to find yourself in a situation where it's maybe somebody lost their job, falling on hard times, and they can't pay you. Yeah. you know? So I was more of just thinking that, the bigger I go or the bigger that I attempt to go, the better off that I'll be. And then also it's just less work. I'd rather have 40 units in one building under one roof than to have 40 separate single family houses. Then now I got to make 40 stops every month yeah. to pick up the rent or I have to hire, you know, a, a, a guy that's doing the landscape and go to 40 different addresses. It's like the more you have under one roof, just the easier it is to scale. And, you know, I didn't want to be a landlord like how my mom was. I didn't want to be the landlord. I, I don't want to be the one that's picking up the rent checks or cutting the grass or screening the tent. I want to have a property management company do that for me. Right. So property management companies, for the most part, they typically like to deal with, you know, office space, apartment buildings where it's all that in one space as opposed to, oh, they got to go make 50 stops because your single right. portfolio is 50 houses, you know? That's, that's time and money, 100%. And, and uh, Operating expense. So, so that's again. So, great, great point. Sounds like economics of scale is, is what you're going with, uh, which makes sense. So, I guess, how did you? Is that what you started with, or is that did you? Yeah. So, take take us through that first deal. So, um, my first deal wasn't actually a deal that I owned. It was uh, I, I started wholesaling. So, <laughs> me too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Lots in common. Yeah, I, I didn't have um, tax returns as far as two years of tax returns because I didn't really, I didn't have a job that I was keeping for any length of period you know I worked at Jack in the Box I worked at Sonic I uh, worked in the mall but I never really was able to I was never really able to hold a typical job for more than like four or five months you know and so yeah. you know I, I started wholesaling and just learning the terms of like ARV which means after repair value and learning like what comps are like that took me a while to even to figure out like what does that mean how do you find it etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. And so um, my first investor that decided to give me a shot was a, a gentleman named Edgar Mont Montalvo. Uh, okay. 
Argentinian man in New Jersey. And um, he, had, he had made his money like the construction business. And so he had done, you know, flips. He, he, he had done the work for other investors for years. Yeah. He knew how to fix houses. He knew how to, you know, where to get the prices from, stuff like that. So he said, you know what? I'm going to start doing this for myself. I'm going to start buying properties for myself, flipping them myself, and keeping the profit. So even though he, was, he knew, you know, construction, he didn't know how to find deals. <laughs> so that's where I came in. Okay. So, you know. Yeah, so so where did up. you, where, where, take a step back though. Where did you meet this gentleman? I met this gentleman in New Jersey. And how, how did you go about meeting this guy? Yeah, so my dad moved to New Jersey in the 90s. And so I'd go there to, you know, spend summers with him like every year, stuff like that. And when I was 12, I actually went out there to live with him for a year. I went to junior high out there. So when I got older, um, when I was transferring colleges from the Midwest to Kane University in New Jersey, then of course I'm going to live with my dad, you know? So I went out there and just immediately just was kind of in hustle mode as far as just trying to find out who's in the area that's actually in the real estate game and trying to see if I could find a mentor by default or something or somebody who would, you know, show me something, whether on purpose or inadvertently or something, you know? And so um, I met him, I believe it was on Craigslist because I put out an ad on Craigslist saying that I can help investors find properties. And so and, at that time, and, and did you did you know at the time how to do that, or you were just kind of just taking a chance? Um, so I, I've sold stuff on Craigslist before, like like my bikes, like my old bikes. You know, I've sold some old cars, so I knew that you could post stuff for sale on there. And then I saw there was a real estate section, and then when I clicked on that real estate section, I was just seeing people were posting ads about everything: selling houses, construction services, electrician services. So I said, okay, let me post the ad saying that you know I'm looking for investors that I can help you find these deals where you're going to make a lot of money, right? I'm your guy. (laughs) And so he gave me a call and I showed him some properties and nothing really materialized like the first four or five months that we knew each other. And then um, there was one time he said, you know what? He, he, he thinks he was kind of being scared to push the button because it was, it was new to him to actually buy something. Yeah. Hey, I'm ready now. Like if you can find something, I'm going to close on it. I won't waste your time. So cool. Found a deal in orange, New Jersey. Uh, they were, it was a townhome. They were asking 70000 for it. Um, I negotiated that down to $42,000 for him. The, uh, the construction cost on it was 30000 but the after repair value would have been one thirty. Nice. That was a good spread. spread. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, he, he purchased the property. Uh, when we got into the demolition phase of the, of the rehab, he had a family emergency and he had to go back to Argentina for three months. Oh, so in my mind, I'm like, okay, is this good? Is this bad? But he said, look, this is what you can do. You can project manage the property thing for me. Oh, nice, nice. And so I'm like, okay. So basically he left for three months and I had never done a flip before, but yet he told all his contractors, his GCs, his electricians that I'm the person that they answer to. So they're bringing, they're bringing me, they're the phase of schedule. You know, anytime they're about to rip out sheetrock or do whatever, they're calling me, I'm coming through, I'm monitoring the whole entire process. Uh, I made sure to record this as well so that I had documentation of it. And, um, you know, we finished the job. He, he came back. It was ready to go. We listed it, sold for, I think we put it on the market for 140 It sold for, I believe, 128 So he made um, like a 40-something thousand dollar profit. And now I have in-person experience of doing a, a flip. Nice. So I kind of use that as the springboard to, 
you know, talk to other investors and say, hey, look what I did for Mr. Montalvo. This is the spread we got. I not only found the deal, I negotiated the deal. I project managed the whole project from A to Z, listed it. I found the realtor that we used to list nice. it. I literally did the entire thing. And so that kind of helped me just get that, that initial bit of credibility that I needed so that I could get more wholesale deals done and be able to kind of build a brand in New Jersey. And then I started a, a real estate meetup in a Newark, New Jersey, which is still going on to, to this day every single oh. Monday. I haven't been in New Jersey for two and a half years. The meetup I started is still going on every Monday. Oh, no kidding, man. We'll definitely have to check that out because, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually locally uh, involved. So, so actually, this is interesting because I'm, I'm, I'm locally around here as well, but I, I, I do my, my business in, in Georgia. But two things I, I want to make sure that, 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 don't get, uh, that don't slip through the cracks. What I heard is the process was, took about four or five months for you to work with uh, um, the gentleman's name again. Um, what was it? Edgar. Montano. Edgar, that's right. So when you were working with Edgar, it took about, what, four or five months for you to even gain in traction at all, if anything. And I think what I want to bring back there is it's just the, the process, right? A lot of us get caught up in the event, right? And I'm a big, you know, if you guys watch my stuff, I'm a big, big proponent of, of, of process. And I think it's really important for, for us to keep that in mind that sometimes it might take you a year, sometimes it might, but like it's a marathon, right? As we call it, the marathon continues, man. So, so um, I want to make sure we bring that home because I don't want the listeners to just, just think that was just an event and, and that, that four to five process was, was a four to five months was a process. The second part that I heard is what I really like is of having a proof of concept, right? That so you had done your, your, your due diligence where in, in the sense of you had gone through the deal first, you had um, managed the entire process of, the, of Edgar's deal, and then you went on and said, hey, this is what I've learned. This is what I can do. This is what I can offer for you. So I think I, I really want to bring that home because I think you just you got to get your hands dirty, right? You know, you got to get your feet wet. Okay. And, and, and that's what the lab is all about. When we come in here, we talk about, okay, how did you get your feet wet? You know, how did you take that process? And then how can it maybe some others can maybe replicate that or offer value to somebody and, and, and learn underneath them before they go out there and maybe try to, you know, do it on their own. So I really like that. I wanted to bring that out to light in case in case they missed it but uh interesting interesting so so i guess you started with wholesaling uh or originally working with edgar right and then that was the first deal then you went on to other contractors what was the pitch like what did you say to them because i I don't want to skip that step you it sounded like okay this is a proof of concept you went on to the next one what did that look like yes i did wholesaling for for quite some time probably about two and a half three years i was doing wholesaling Mm -hmm. uh Really just because I wanted to kind of know and meet all the investors that were buying property in the Essex County, New Jersey area. I, would have, I just wanted to know who's in the game here. You know, who's the person that's doing seven or eight flips a year? And I want to, I want to know all of those guys and kind of mm-hmm. just myself aware to them. So that way deals are coming to you as opposed to you're always trying to go out and hunt something. Mm-hmm. And so, um, after that, um, the city of Newark, they were doing um, a sale of properties that they owned that they had either had to foreclose from people that hadn't paid property taxes or that for some reason over the years, they had like 13,000 properties and cities are not in the real estate business. That's not, so they don't want to have a whole portfolio of properties. Yeah. They, they, they were basically saying that if there's developers or investors that can take these properties from them, fix them up within a certain time period and get them, you know, up to what they should be, that they'd sell the properties to you for next to nothing. Because on the back end, yeah, they may have sold you the property for, you know, a thousand, a thousand bucks, 
but now they're getting property taxes. Property taxes. Here. It's on their revenue roll. So they want that not to have mm-hmm. you know, an abandoned two family on the South side that they're not going to go and fix. So, you know, I went to the city and I ended up buying um, a vacant lot of land from them, 25 by a hundred, uh, 4,000 bucks. And so uh, I was going to build a new construction property on it because there was nothing on it, but it was in the heart of the South Ward in Newark and uh, about a mile and a half from downtown Newark. And so that posed to be, you know, it set some new issues because I've never built anything from the ground up before. Yeah. I had to learn about, you know, getting architectural plans drawn up, which you, know, you got to pay an architect five, $6,000 and yeah. then submit that, you know, there may have to be some revisions because sometimes it has to be to code. Yeah, yeah. could have made a beautiful rendering, but it it may be off code. So now you got to take it back to them. They're going to charge you more to revise it. And then you have this whole process. And so that was a very costly process. And then also I was learning that not all general contractors in real estate business are honest uh, because the initial quotes that I got to build this, this two family, you know, um, it would, they were rip off prices, but I didn't know because I didn't know what the regular price was. So I, in that situation, I learned that and I use, I use this as an analogy. If you do not know how much a Toyota costs, I can sell you a Toyota for a Mercedes Benz price and you will have, and you'll think you got a good deal because you don't know. <laughs> you know? So, so, so for those of us listening now, you know, for, for someone who's new, what advice advice do you give them then? And what, what should I do, Tosin, if I'm saying, you know, it- exactly what I did. I went mm-hmm. and got a job at Home Depot. Mm-hmm. I went and worked at Home Depot and in the garden department. And on my breaks, I'd walk around Home Depot and find out how much hard hardwood floors cost per square foot, how much interior doors cost, exterior doors cost, how much mulch and, and peat moss and sod and grass seed. So mm-hmm. being immersed in it, you know how much these things cost so now you're more you're not as easy to get taken advantage of because if you hear a number you can be like oh that doesn't really sound right you know and then also being that i built a really good relationship with the zoning department in the city of newark you know and they really wanted to see me succeed they're like hey this is a young guy you know he's trying to redevelop the city and they really did everything they could to really help me knowing it was my first time so i used to bring them the quotes that i would get from contractors and they would tell me like nah, Tosin, that's not right. That's too expensive. <laughs> and so that was kind of like the first uh, big brother that I had to like help me make sure that I wasn't getting ripped off. It was the city of Newark. And so I'm like forever grateful to them because I didn't even know that cities do stuff like that, you know? Shout out to the and city so, of um, Newark. So yeah, that was and everybody in that office, man. Love you guys, really. That's awesome. Big shout out to them. So, so that's very interesting. So it sounds like regardless uh point i want to bring home is is you needed to educate yourself on 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 the current market prices but at the same time it also sounds like another alternative to that might be and this is what we always talk about in the lab too is is get multiple bids right you do not count on one person uh to to give you a quote and and then you just run away with that because unless you've done business with that person even even if you've done business with someone for a long time, you want to make sure you still remain, you know, competitive and you get multiple, multiple quotes. Uh, I think that's another good way to do it for, for those of us who don't have the, uh, the, the luxury to be submerged in the environment like you did. That's also another way to do it because essentially you, you educated yourself uh, and you also had 
again, other investors, partners, we can kind of give you guidance. I mean, there, there, there's different ways that you can immerse yourself. You know, a lot of people's biggest thing is time. Like, oh, I don't have time because I have yeah. to go home. Yeah. That's why I said, okay, I'm going to work at Home Depot where there's contractors coming in there every day to buy stuff on flips that they're doing. So when they're asking questions, hey, Tosin, what aisle are the interior doors on? Oh, come with me. I'll show you. Yeah. Um, what are you guys building? What you guys up to? And you start saying these conversations. And so you're at work, you're, you know, fulfilling the responsibilities of still being able to bring in a paycheck, but you're also learning. So whatever you want to do, if you can get a job, no matter how menial or low it is in that industry, then that is probably going to be the best way for you to learn because it's going to be number one, it's going to be an everyday thing and not just a, when I have a couple of hours on the weekend, you know, yeah. so that to me is the best way to really become a ninja at anything you're trying to do. If you don't have a mentor, if you don't have somebody that's going to sit down and, and tell you how it is, there's other ways to learn. It's, there's not just, you know, the teacher student. Yeah. There's also experience. Yeah. You know? No, I, I'm actually a big fan of what you did because I think, you know, people are always going to say, you know, they don't have enough time. And it's true. I mean, you got to make time. You got to create time. So why not, you know, double dip? That sounds like earlier, you know, you got on Craigslist, you, 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 you know, you went out there, you were willing to put in the work in exchange for what may not have been cash right away, but a strategic partnership. So you're fully submerged. When you're at Home Depot, you're getting paid, but at the same time, you're submerged into the environment. A lot of you guys know it's the same thing. How I got started, very similar. Uh, I, I literally submerged myself into bigger pockets. I got my license so I could uh, not, when, when the wholesale deals didn't work, I could actually you know represent as an agent. And what I did specifically, this is not sexy. They don't tell you this if you're trying to be an agent to sell real estate. I, was, I got my license to be an investor, but what I did as I represented investors as we know they're very particular but allow me to understand okay what you know what ARB you looking for what kind of returns what kind of cash on cash are you trying to get does this deal make sense or not you know so you're you're driving around with them and you're not closing any deals but you're literally at the same time getting all this knowledge of like okay that's how they evaluated the deal and so I, I know that's it, I, what I like about your story Tosin is that you're always thinking long term of like okay what I, you know what I want what I'm gonna get out of a uh, out of a skill skill set and and um i think that's important too because um you know I, i'm you know and i don't want to monopolize this but i'm so passionate about this topic it's just the way we we, we educate ourselves because i'm mentoring a few kids coming out of school to be like you know what i gotta do you know mate i think the biggest thing man and i don't know if you want to hop in on this with with, with with this conversation tosin about this topic with education is i think my biggest concern is that it's so much like it i remember what's your major what's your major and it's, it's not so much about what your major is what skill set are you going to learn that's going to be applicable to the next thing that you're going to do i mean do you have anything to say about that because i I mean, I know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I went to college, so I'm not that entrepreneur that's going to tell you, oh, don't go to college. And go no, to no, no, no. I'm for it as well. I'm for yeah. it as well. For it, um, not necessarily for the educational side, per se, but for the experience. Being in that ecosystem, you learn things that you can take away. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it can be people, man. Like, I learned people management being in college because, you, know, yeah. you know, being in a fraternity, throwing parties or having yeah. things, and you learn. It's marketing. It's marketing. You, you like, you, there's like a, a structure and a method to a lot of this stuff. Yeah. When you get out of college, you can take those things and remix them and mm -hmm. use them. And those yeah. are things that are not taught in the classroom. Those are things that your professor's not telling you how yeah. to do, you know? And so yeah. um, I'm, I'm all for uh, going to college if you can afford it or getting a trade and then also starting a business as well, you know? But yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, when I'm trying to learn something or figure something out, I always go with the route of, 
if I can find nobody to teach me this, how can I learn it? Because people, sometimes people are always waiting for somebody to come and save them or for somebody to put them on or for somebody to put them in the right direction. Mm -hmm. That person never comes. What am I going to do to get to where I need to go? So yeah. it's, that's why the things like, okay, if, I, if I'm not going to have anybody who's going to teach me, you know, the pricing for construction materials, okay, I'll go work at a place where I'm going to have to deal with that every single day just by default, and I'll learn it that way. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's how I kind of always look at everything. So when we fast forward to, you know, uh, we launched a real estate fund last year. Uh, we raised $10 million in seven days. When I came up with the idea that we should put heavy emphasis and energy on starting a real estate fund, I didn't know anybody who owned hedge funds or mutual funds or none of that. Mm -hmm. So I went on Google. I started typing it. I typed in um, hedge funds, New York City. And then it brought up all the funds that were in New York City about 15 minutes away from me because I was in Jersey. And I sent them emails. I followed them on Instagram and was just talking to all of them, trying to see who is going to, you know, let me come in and, you know, tour their building or walk their office or whatever. And so I was running around New York like a chicken with his head cut off trying <laughs> to find which one of these funds will give me some game. And so luckily, one time um, I was actually on Snapchat and I kept seeing that there was this person that kept watching all of my snaps. And it was a very long name. So it was obviously a foreign name. And I was like, who is this person? So I just said, you know what, let me Google the name. I Googled the name. He was the principal of a real estate fund in New York that originated from Columbia, but it raised over $300 million through their platform called the Prodigy Network wow. based in Manhattan. So in my mind, I'm like, <laughs> watching all of my stuff. So I sent him a message like, hey, man, um, do we know each other? He's like, no. I'm like, okay, I see you're in real estate. He's like, yeah, I see you are too. Just, it was very humble conversation. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, me already knowing who he is now because I, I <laughs> if I know you guys are some big boys. So I was like, hey, man, uh, maybe we should meet for coffee on me. He's like, I was going to say the same thing, sure. Wow. Within a week, I'm in his office in New York, and they're on like the 50th floor, and they're basically walking me through how they started their fund in Columbia, how they took it to Miami and decided to actually focus on, um, I believe, the Soho area of Manhattan, and that since the inception of their fund, they'd raised over $300 million, had about half a billion dollars in assets, like as far as like physical property. Wow. And he basically with, you know, free of charge, just said, sure, what do you want to know? And so that first meeting, I was like, okay, you know, this is a lot to take in. When's the next time we, we can meet? He's like, I'll come back in a couple of days. I come back in a couple of days and we pick up. And then I say, you know, I have a partner. I have a partner. I'm going to bring him with me next time because we're going to start our, our own fund and we really want to make sure that we're doing things the right way. And since you all have been so successful with it, you know, and you've been so gracious enough to, you know, and that, that's why I always say people who are really doing it, they don't need to hide anything from you because oh. you know, they, there's enough money. Boom. All right. Let's, let's, let's talk about that real quick. Cause I love that Tosin. I'm saying when someone wants to hide information and they don't see a little bit of themselves in you, it, it literally shows to me that to me, you're showing me an image that you're not really doing it. Right. When someone's really doing it, they'll sometimes see a little bit of hustle in you that they want to help. I can't tell you how many times this has happened in a, where there's somebody who's literally crushing it. Yeah. And even these masterminds, and that's why I say it's so important without getting off topic. It's so important that we, we, we um, surround ourselves with people who are really, really doing it. Correct. But at, at, at a scale where they want to share and they're not afraid that someone's going to take their idea because they know the execution's yeah. where it's at. 
and they want right. to be in that circle of people that are making moves. And, yeah. and who doesn't want to say, oh, that kid over there that raised $10 billion, I remember I him on. starting, I gave him some advice. Yeah. That, that in themselves is something they'll take pride in. Of that, course. That, that and it, it's, it's, it's they gave you, you took that and went and did some amazing stuff. I love that. <laughs> you know, I love that, man. That's just giving me the goosebumps over here. You give me a hype. So, I that's fascinating, and I'm so glad you, you you're literally taking us through your your current state where you are today. So, you guys uh, uh, raised ten million dollars. Wanna wanna give give us an idea for those of us who might not know how a fund is is run and how we usually go about it. I know people hear a lot of different things. They hear hedge funds, they hear private equity, VC uh, syndication, which honestly is very similar with the two and 20. They're all similar to come under umbrella. So let's, let's maybe break it down. Cause I know, and I'm glad you're on here because again, that's my vision as well. And I'm having, you know, in, in the flesh toast and you're breaking it down what you've done. And, and, and first of all, I tip my hat to you. Very remarkable. So tell us a little bit about that. How, so, Maybe the, 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 the bones of it, of, of what a fund is and, and how it works. So with the funds, it it's all depends on your classification. So okay. mutual funds, hedge funds, crowd funds, they're all funds under the same umbrella. But depending on what type of assets you're going to be buying, whether it's real estate or businesses, there's different uh, classifications that you'll file under with the SEC. So when it comes to real estate, as far as the ones that I'm aware of, uh, there may be more. I'm not an expert, even though we've done enough. There's still a lot I don't know. But there's Regulation A and there's Regulation D. Mm -hmm. So Regulation A is basically a crowd fund, but it's also divided into two types, Regulation A Tier Mm 1 or Regulation A Tier 2. So Tier 1 is for accredited investors, meaning that in order to invest in that fund or to be a limited partner, an LP in that fund, you have to make at least $250,000 a year or have a net worth of a million dollars. Regulation A tier two, which is what our fund is, is for unaccredited investors, which means that you don't have to fit those guidelines, but uh, you you can only invest no more than 10% of what your net worth is. Um, The minimum investments for unaccredited investor funds are much lower because you're dealing with people that aren't necessarily wealthy. And then a lot more scrutiny from the SEC and a lot more checks and balances because now you're actually, you're taking in money from people that can't really afford to lose it. So they want to make sure that you're not going to be some Bernie Madoff. Mm -hmm. You're going to raise all this money and just, you know, skate off into the sunset. And now you've taken away from people that couldn't afford to lose that. So we chose regulation a tier two because majority of our community and our demographic are not wealthy. They're not financially literate and they're not accredited investors. So they can't invest in private offerings for these institutional sized investments. So it's kind of like a catch 2020 because it's like, you're not rich enough to invest in these things. Right. But also you can't afford to invest in these things, even if the door was open for you. Kind of stops you from ever getting into another tax bracket to where you can grow. Yeah, and what Tosin is talking about for for those of you who are may or may not be familiar is that tier tier one. You're talking more about a lot of the minimum uh, entry level, or like fifty k to like a hundred k, which uh, you would never advise someone to put all their eggs in one basket. If it means that if they put that fifty k in and that fifty k doesn't come back because there's always risk, then they're literally <laughs> in, in, in bad shape. Yeah. So 
I'm glad you're touching on this because I know that on, on that that side I'm more or less uh, familiar with. But do you want to talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of the misconceptions uh, of Tier 2? Because um, from what I understand, I hear that there's a little bit, like you said, the SEC is more on you. There's way more paperwork. But what does it look like if you're running one of those funds and, and if, um, you know, hey, I'm your neighbor, Tosin, you've been good to me, man. I'm, I've known you. Do we have to have the same relationship that you have to have in a Tier 1? Or is it how to t- tell us a little bit about that? So with tier two, you can openly market and openly solicit. So mm-hmm. you can market on the internet. You can have a YouTube series, a blog. You can nice, you nice. Know, have an email blast. You can openly market, but of course there has to be the, you know, your investors can invest more than 10%. There's a rigorous just vetting process. The, the SEC is, it's, it's probably going to take anywhere from like 12 months to 18 months to properly go through that process because you get audited, your finances get audited. They want, the SEC wants to make sure they know who you are because they're about to give you, you know, the free will to go and raise money from people who can't afford to lose it. Now, if you're dealing with regulation A tier one or like regulation D where you're only dealing with rich people, the government <laughs> doesn't even care about those guys. If they're money, I'm telling you, like you can start a regulation D fund in 15 days. And the SEC, the SEC does not really, it's kind of funny because you think they don't care about poor people. But when it comes to setting up these things, they say, well, hey, if their net worth is over a million dollars and they want to invest 40 grand into something and they lose that 40 grand, they'll be fine. You know, so there's, a, there's way more of a, uh, a flashlight and a microscope on when mm. you're doing what we did, right? So it t- it's, it's a lot longer. Um, of course, there's several audits and, you know, um, the paperwork and files have to be publicly available. So anybody can go on the Internet, Google Tulsa Real Estate Fund SEC, and they'll have access to every single paperwork we've ever filed with the SEC. It's public. Wow. Wow. So so what was the intention? Because I want to jump dive in a little bit. So you raised 10 million. And what are you telling? Is it the same pitch as, you know, maybe some of these tier ones? What are you telling some of those members in your community? What is the end goal? What is the strategy? And again, you let me know if there's anything you can't disclose. I just want to get a little bit more insight of and be educated on, on this uh, tier two. As far as what the goal was with our tier two fund is that we as we're raising money, we can either be the ones that pick what assets we want to invest it in, or we can pick developers that we believe in that are going to invest in our communities and say, we'll be your bank. So you don't have to go to Bank of America or Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae. We'll give you the money at favorable interest rates, stuff like that. We'll be an mm-hmm. equity partner in your deal. Mm-hmm. And then of course we give our 8% preferred return and 50% of the profits. So it basically just allows us to be a financial institution that we have the control of where we're putting the capital so that we don't have to always go to a Chase or a Fannie Mae or a Freddie Mac who may say, you know what? Oh, they want to invest in the South side of Detroit. And yeah, let's just deny that loan. Now we don't have to have that issue. And so let's say you are a developer you don't have 10 years of experience developing properties, right? But you know what you're doing. You've been in for a year or two. You've got a couple flips in. You can go to that next level, but no bank is going to give you that $4 million, $5 million loan for you to actually go to that second stage, that second level of your career. You would come to us. You would come to a regulation A tier two fund and we would say, okay, let's properly underwrite the deal. We're not really going to care about your income. It's, it's going to be based off of the deal if that deal has an ROI which is going to allow us to fulfill our obligations to our investors and just make sense on a, uh, uh, an underwriting standpoint. And so with that, it just, it just gives us 
that power to be able to fund different people in our community. We always say in the office that we don't want to be the ones doing all the deals. Like, I don't want to be doing a deal in New Orleans and in Atlanta and Miami and Chicago all at the same time. So let me find somebody like you that's in Houston who has a great deal that's going to, you know, bring up the values in, in that area that, that, that's going to be investing in the communities where we c- come from. Let's come up with an agreement with him and loan him the money so that he can do that deal. Okay. So, so let, let, me, let me take a step back because I want to make sure I, I understand this as well as, as the folks listening. So um, as I understand the traditional model of, of some of what these multifamily apartment funds are doing is that they're raising capital um, um, and as their general partner, they have a bunch of limited partners and they're raising capital to still go get a loan, right? To still leverage that loan. Are you saying that in your fund, you actually... Um, I, I want to understand the part where you're saying you're, you're, you're giving people loans. That's the part where I didn't, I didn't really maybe understand. Um, so uh, I, I guess maybe that was the wrong terminology. Oh yeah, no, it's fine. Maybe I misunderstood. I just want to bring some clarity to that. I think you're going somewhere with that. More of becoming a capital partner on your deal. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily a loan where it's like, oh, we give you this loan and it's at 6% interest rate and that's it. No, mm-hmm. being more of a capital partner on the deal to where we'll have equity in that deal. So we'll share in the profits when it comes to cash flow. Got it. Or if we refinance or mm-hmm. whatever that happens. Because we still have an obligation to our 9,000 investors who have shares in our fund. Yeah. So they're not just LPs that just get a return. They have shares in any property that we buy forever. Oh. As long as, for as long as they own their shares, they actually own a piece of the company. You know, so we like to kind of partner, be capital partners. I guess is a better term than owning out the money. We're more of capital partners. So do you, would you be able to, and, and if I'm catching off guard here, let me know, but what are, I guess, some of the main differences between uh, like a, a general syndication for those of you who are maybe familiar with what syndication is versus um, this, this tier two, uh, kind of funding model. Are there differences or are they very similar? There's differences and similarities. Again, it depends mm-hmm. on how you cloud and, and a deal by deal cases. Syndication mm-hmm. by general definition is that you have a manager who pulls together funds from different LPs and mm-hmm. maybe doesn't use any of their own money. Right, right. Mm-hmm. They're just being the stewards of that money, basically saying, mm-hmm. okay, these are the pots where we think we could get the most return. Right. If you're a lawyer or a doctor, you've been a successful lawyer or doctor for 40 years, you make $800,000 a year, you're about to retire, you're wealthy, but you don't know anything about real estate. So you may take, you know, 60 grand out of your retirement fund and give it to who you deem to be a good steward of the money, that syndicator, and they'll properly, since that's their lane, they'll properly, you know, decide where it's going to go and then pay out the dividends, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, it can go both ways. I mean, there, there's totally different ways as far as um, different avenues that you can take it, but they are under the same umbrella. It just depends like what direction you want to go with it. You know, okay. it's just very, confu- it, it is very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, you got regulation A, tier one, tier two, regulation D, 506C, 506B. You have all mm-hmm. these different things, which it's the same thing, but in depending on how you're going to do it, who you're going to raise the money from, then, then you get into those details of, okay, you know, which kind of now separates the two or separates them from each other. Gotcha. So I guess what kind of, uh, what markets are you guys looking at? Are you guys investing in Midwest, the South or? Uh, we, have four, uh, we have 14 properties in our portfolio right now. We're working on a team which should close by the end of the month. Well, by the end of the year. Good for you. 
going to be Atlanta market. We have a um, uh, 30,000 square foot office space in East Point, Georgia, which was our first acquisition. Um, we're actually having the grand opening for that this Friday on the 29th. Is that Friday? On the 29th. Uh, 29th. Yes, sir. It should be. 28th is uh, Thursday. Yep. Correct. And then um, our last acquisition was a 98-unit apartment complex in Macon, Georgia. Oh, Macon. Nice. Yeah, we purchased 14 units in Lake Charles, Louisiana, seven units in New Orleans. Um, we've done a few single-family flips in Somerset, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one in Buckhead as well. And so we're working on a 33-unit in Chicago, Illinois right now in the Chicago South Shore neighborhood, which I love. You know, I found that deal and I jumped all over it. I I love Chicago. So we're probably going to be focusing a lot in the Midwest, in the Illinois and Indiana area. But, you know, just anywhere where there is a nice size population um, and where there are like secondary and tertiary markets is kind of where we like to be at. So class C, class B, Class D areas, you know, yeah. like anything that's valuable, what we feel strongly about. Excellent. And as far as the uh, the some of the maybe some of the Class D properties, are you finding that uh, coming in, your your there's no is there any rent rule history at all, or is or sometimes so with Class D properties, they're historically a low occupancy. Mm-hmm. If you're dealing with a 50 unit building that's Class D, maybe 10 of those units are occupied. Mm-hmm. The other 40 are down, and literally the rent roll that's coming in, it's covering like the expenses, but there is no real cash flow. Yeah. So are are you struggling to to are you putting up your own money and 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 putting in cash and then the value add as well, or are you still leveraging a commercial loan uh, along uh, in addition to the fund? So it, it it like so with that it is deal deal by deal. Yeah. It it is a situation where we can come in and just purchase it cash, and you know we're not on the time clock of having to, you know, start paying back a bank if we did leverage debt, if those are a bit more comfortable situations because we just have that time. Um, If we don't, you know, some, some, some lenders will allow you a nice little, what we call a cash flow holiday. I'm I'm sorry. It's called a capital holiday. Well, they'll give you three to six months before you have to start making that first payment back just to give you some, maybe stabilize the asset. Um, So it's really just a deal by deal case, uh, a case by case, yeah. But um, yeah, all of those techniques or strategies can work. It just depends what you're actually looking at. Um, our main goal is that within the next year or so to make sure that all the properties that we have under management are owned free and clear. So we're just getting those banks out of there. So that way it's, it's just, you know, if you're going to be the, the new black wall street, you yeah. got you know to you you own, own it, own it from the top down. That's so interesting. So, so that's very interesting because then your, your play is more to, to literally build the equity as much as possible. It's not as much cash flow, is it? Correct. Yes. So cash flow is great. Mm-hmm. Equity is great too. So depending on what we're looking at, they can take priority over each other. But they're always number one and number two. Mm-hmm. Depending on the deal, one may, you know, equity may be more important here at this mm-hmm. point or this particular okay, cash flow is what we may be looking for more. Yeah. So um, but yeah, those two are is definitely what we look for all the time and the opportunity to cash flow stabilization that you just get to sleep at night. If you have a property that's actually yielding a return, mm-hmm. you know, no matter how small that return is, we're in the black though. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah. just being in the black to me is being in the clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it, awesome. 
is the number one thing we look for when we underwrite a deal is how quickly can we get to stabilization or cash flow? Stabilization. Yeah, for sure. And, and if I'm an investor in, in your fund, uh, what can I expect? Am I expecting like a quarter, quarterly payout or, or a monthly or am I waiting on the exit strategy? to? So when we launched, there was a one year lockout period. So we launched June 1st, 2018. Um, most funds, not every fund has a lockout period. In the beginning 100%. Because yep. that money, you need to have time to go and deploy it somewhere. So if you can put money in and take it out a month later, how can the fund acquire assets, right? A hundred percent. It's it's not it's not so much like uh, oof. I hope I'm not gonna go down a rabbit hole, but it's not so much like the the stock market where you just right. hey I want to take my money out. No, you're kind of like locked into a a note with obviously a, an asset as the collateral. Right. Um, but go ahead. After a year, it's an eight percent preferred return mm-hmm. and fifty percent of the of the splits, the profit splits. So fifty percent of the cash flow. Nice. We refinance whatever that cash out is. Fifty percent of that is split amongst all the investors, as well as on top of their eight percent preferred return. Eight um, percent preferred return is kind of the market um, uh, regular. You mm-hmm. know, um, a lot of funds that have had, that have been around for five, ten years that maybe have more assets under management. Of course, they will go higher. I've seen ten and twelve before. Um, I just saw an outrageous story. I'm not sure. I'm not, I didn't fact check this, so I'm not sure. But it was a fund that was started in the 80s, and it said that they've been historically giving out 78% returns since the 80s. And that's, to me, that sounds <laughs> impossible. And I, I need to take some time to see. You, you're going to need to send me that link. That's what you're yeah. going <laughs> to Yeah. Yeah. Fun to see if there is any truth to that, because that's amazing. That is I mean, crazy. I've heard crazy as, you know, the 20s, and but the 70s, like, I mean, what? Right. 20s can actually be done yeah. by right management. That can be done. Yeah, yeah. 8%, I was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, they must have a whole operation within the building. That's what <laughs> So that's interesting. So, I, man, I love, first of all, I, I really appreciate how, you know, educated you've, you've really, you know, like, again, all this you didn't know before and you educated yourself when you sound, uh, it, it's it's fantastic to hear how, how well sound you are in, into what your current endeavor is as as um hedge fund manager manager that there's still a lot i don't know even today yeah. i was talking to a lender who i'm trying to get to finance a uh, 138 unit uh, 13 million dollar uh acquisition in tallahassee mm-hmm. and when he was asking me for some documents he said a term that i wasn't familiar with yeah and the term was i'll show you that term with you guys i'm, yeah. I'm i am transparent he called it a dynamic underwriting model Oof. okay were you, able to, were you able to look into it and find out what that was for us? Before I responded to that email, I, I went on Google. <laughs> couldn't find that term on Google. Uh, I reached out to our CFO, who is a master underwriter. And he said, I'm not familiar with that term, but if you can show me something, maybe I'll know what I'm looking at. So I don't know if that lender, maybe if that's an in-house term, if maybe that's a term that's used in their state or something. Mm-hmm. Different states, you know, lenders have different lingo. And so there's stuff like this is happening every day. I'm, I'm by, by no means a Warren Buffett. I'm, I'm yeah. learning. So yeah. There's always new terms I'm learning, new um, analyses that I'm learning that I'm picking up. And so that, that never really stops. Yeah, and you, know? and you got to stay humble. I think that's what it is, too. I think sometimes some people can be scared away from, oh, man, I don't know this. It's okay, honestly. I think uh, 
one of the leaders that I respect the most, they'll say it. They'll be able to, to, to take that load off of the shoulders of the team and be like, hey, I don't know what that is. And I think it's it, it, there's nothing wrong with someone not knowing anything. That's that's why we're actually in the lab. We're always trying to figure out ways to learn learn something new. Um, but I want to dive in a little bit about uh, and, and figure out. So you talked about all the great that you're doing and you started with yourself, but clearly you're not doing this alone anymore. And this is one thing I always talk about. It's strategic partnerships. Uh, I want to talk about a little bit what the team is and, and how you came about being uh, creating that team uh, and who, who's involved and how, how you were able to actually create those uh, like-minded individuals to collaborate with you. Yeah. So, I mean, um, when, when I was in New Jersey and I was running around trying to find out like who actually is, um, you know, functioning in the game. Yeah. I came across a lot of people, a lot of people that were very humble, that were doing some big things that were not put off that I was a beginner um, we're not put off that maybe I couldn't bring any immediate value. Yeah. Well, they said, okay, like he wants to learn. And at some point in time, he wants to be able to provide some type of value to what we have going on. Yeah. And so I really, I worked for free. I was basically like an intern to a lot of, a lot of people for a long time, just to be able to help them and, and learn. Process, and, process. So just in, in that process, you know, just those relationships just started getting really strong really really strong and you know became like you know like family member type strong you know that's amazing and and then we kind of just jumped off and started doing a lot of big things together so you know uh will roundtree was one edgar montavo was one jay morris one um richard frischen was one these are all people that i've met at different stages of my life over the years and have been able to do great things with all of them and also great things collectively and together you know and so um you know, when I first met Will Roundtree, that was about five and a half years ago, I believe. I believe I was, because I, I was doing sales. I was an intern at a, a, tra- a, a real estate investment training company school. And I believe he called in and I, I think I sold him a package or something. I sold, <laughs> I sold him one of the products. And then, you know, he, he joined the course, he learned some things. And, and now Will Roundtree has a, a, a credit business that's doing $5 million a year in revenue. Wow. You know, and just being able to see that, like, oh my, like, that makes me so happy because yeah. he's like, he's like a brother to me, and just seeing that, you know, he's doing his thing in Vegas, it's just amazing. Yeah. And you know, Rashard Frierson, who was um, a gentleman who um, I believe he used to do, have a lot of contracts with the government, mm. and when we first met, he was kind of walking me through or trying to explain to me how you bid for a government contract, like yeah. how it has to be. Written. That and I, I never really got good at it, but just seeing that he was taking that time to try to teach me and, and show me that, and, and he, he's he's always there to you know give me information. He's the first person I sent that to today when I when I got that term. I said, "Hey, Mashard, what?" The- <laughs> <laughs> Go back to the roots. Yeah, and then Jay Morrison just as far as showing me how he markets and brands his businesses and how you know content, content, content is very important. That if people can't see you or hear you. Yeah and then see a history of you, then it's kind of hard for people to connect with a ghost, you know? And so he was the one that kind of showed me the importance of stepping out, putting your name and your face on something and being confident in what you're doing. If you don't want to put your name or your face on something, that means deep down inside, you don't stand Mm -hmm. and you want to be able to, and you want to be able to dash or dip out or run away if things go wrong. You know, it, I heard a very interesting quote about that. It says that I don't need to know what you're doing. I need you to know. I need to know that you know that you know what you're doing. Like you got to be, you know what I mean? Like you got to take take that in for a second. Like 
somebody needs to have trust that you trust yourself. Right. And the only way to do that is to do very similar to what you did. You go back to the lab, you get educated, you make the right connections. And now you have confidence that it's, it's so, I mean, it's sales one-on-one. If you're not convinced in the product that you're selling to the next person, they're not going to be convinced either. And, and a hundred percent it's energy, man. And I'm so glad you said that it's energy a hundred percent. And so, um, I love that you said that and shout out to Jay Morrison. I've been following him for a while, man. Uh, maybe you can, uh, definitely down the road, make that connection happen, man. That's uh, I mean, I, I love what he's doing with the corner class, uh, just giving back to the community. I mean, you guys are, uh, you are doing such a good job, man. So I, I really salute and tip my hat to you, to you both. Um, uh, no pun intended, because you got a nice hat for your, you guys listening on the podcast. You got Tosin doesn't just come with knowledge. He comes with a lot of style and value. So uh, make sure you guys check this out on, on, on the YouTube as well if you're listening. But, man, it's been so real. I want to I talk about a little bit. Uh, you've, been, you've had such an interesting journey and a humble one as well. Uh, I want to hear a little bit about some of the, some of the biggest mistakes you, you, you think you've made. And, and I think, again, we always talk about these mistakes being blessings and, 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 and moments to learn. Yes. So what is one remarkable one that stands out that, that you may have touched on earlier, but if there's um, another remarkable one? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest problems that an entrepreneur can have if they're not careful is when they start getting a little bit of success. Because when you start getting your first success, successes, it feels so good and you feel so elated and you start thinking that you're just going to hit the jackpot on anything you do. Yeah, everything you touch turns yeah, to gold. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I rushed into another business that I didn't have as much preparation or training for. Mm-hmm. I got into the sports business in Manhattan. I'm sorry, the, the sports what? Sports bar. Oh, no kidding. That's a big um, jump. Yeah, so I, I got into the sports bar business in Manhattan in the East Village, uh, put up a, a nice amount of money to kind of buy into that partnership because I had three other partnerships, two older brothers, two older Jewish brothers, and there was another lady that was a silent partner. And, I, and I'm sorry, Tosin, is that, was that a, like a franchise you guys were buying or what was it? It wasn't a franchise. It, it was an already existing bar. It was a mm-hmm. big bar by itself. But um, I bought into the partnership. And so I bought into the, the restaurant side of that bar. So I had 90% ownership and, and control of the restaurant side of that business. Smack dab in the East Village in Manhattan. This is prime, prime real estate. So wait, so so take a step back because you you you're talking about this like you know, like the, like we just noticed that. I mean, this is fascinating. You went into it. So Talk real quick, just high level of what it's like to buy into a partnership. Is it is it, you know. Do you want to talk about that 90%? What does that mean for someone who's not familiar? So if you buy into a partnership, that partnership can be segmented. So if it's a business like a sports bar, mm-hmm. a sports bar has different businesses under the business. So you have the bar side, the alcohol side, right. the restaurant side, mm-hmm. and then you may have the outside vendor side. So okay. the liquor license is going to be reserved for the people who actually filed and got the liquor license in their name. Wow. So just because your party's in a sports bar doesn't mean you're entitled to any of the liquor license revenue. See, thank you. See, you were gonna you were gonna bypass that. You thought we knew. No, we gotta get into the lab and that, that's so interesting. So, I, so okay, I'm, I'm wow. Sitting, so I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, I got 90% of the restaurant side. Yeah, I'm getting 
okay, so if people order alcohol while they're, I'm getting a piece of the, the liquor revenue. Well, yeah, you thought you thought you were gonna go out there and get yourself a a, a few drinks, a bottle. You thought you were reinvesting yourself, not necessarily. I was getting a cut of the liquor revenue because the liquor revenue is really what keeps um, hospitality establishments alive because the wow. margin, the margins on alcohol are anywhere from seven hundred to nine hundred percent. You know why I believe you? Because you know those bottles they they yes. sell in those those okay. bars and clubs. Perfect example. Perfect, perfect yeah. example. You go to a club, you buy a bottle for two hundred and fifty bucks. When they bought that bottle, they didn't buy the bottle by itself from the liquor store. They Wholesale. So they got a wholesale price. Not only not only are they not getting a commercial price that we get, because we'll buy the bottle yeah. like thirty, maybe forty dollars, whatever, and then they upsell it to two fifty. They're also getting the wholesale price on it. And the volume. And if they commit to a certain contract where they say, look, we're gonna buy our Jack Daniels whiskey from you at least a hundred cases a month for a five-year contract, they'll give you even lower pricing. So the bottle that's being sold for 250 bucks in the club, they could have got that for 12 bucks, 13 bucks if you really break down the unit cost or whatever. So I didn't have any, um, any entitlement to any revenue off the liquor. I had 90% of the profits that were coming from the restaurant side, but the margins on restaurants on food is like, 27%, 28%. So, and then keep in mind, you have a product that can spoil. Liquor, right. I can in the basement and it can sit there for months. It doesn't spoil. But food, every three or four days, if we don't sell this, it's got to get tossed out. Waste. So there's a huge turnaround. So not only do I have to pay my chefs and the people that are working in the kitchen, I have to make sure that I'm hiring people that understand the restaurant business because if there's some mold in the fridge because somebody forgot to throw out the lettuce and the health department comes in and they take our A grade and put it to a C, that can mean that people are not even going to come and eat in there anymore. Yeah. Before they come back to give you a new grade, it could be three months. So for three months, you have a C letter in your window and people are going to be like, ugh. So because of that, that you can go under. <laughs> so, so the risk risk when you're just in the restaurant side is so much higher and so much more likely to happen not because you're a bad businessman but because you can have employees that maybe you know when they closed down yesterday they for they forgot to toss away the tomatoes that were sitting on the counter and now in the morning there's mold everywhere they just wiped it off and there's mold hiding somewhere and you don't you don't even see it yeah, you need to be you need to be a very 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 savvy operator and um one one of the books actually I'll give a quick plug to you know uh, you know the Houston Rockets owner Tillman Furtado. Yes. Uh shut up and listen. I mean, he this guy is is sharp. He talks about pulling in the parking lot and being able to identify whether a restaurant is having is going to be successful or not. And so it just reminds you of in addition to knowing your numbers, all the operations that goes into play. I mean, it sounds like if you can run a restaurant operation, you'd be a damn well uh, yeah. real estate mogul. Uh, yeah. I mean, to say the very least, uh, that's, that's, that's yeah. intense. Okay. So, so you got into that, into the, the, the 90% um, partnership. I mean, you, we, the, the question was one of the biggest mistakes you made. So I guess, have you got to that point yet? Yeah. It's a lot that happens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was the initial dynamic, right? So um, another thing that I didn't really factor into is the demographic of the customer. Hmm. So when I got into that business, it was January 2016. Our biggest customer demographic were college students that went to NYU because NYU was a mile and a half away. So January is the beginning of the semester. 
So when I got into that business the first three months, these college kids are coming in here every day and swiping dad's credit card and spending money. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is the business. This is how it's going to be fat. <laughs> the thing about Ivy League colleges, which is different from like state schools or regular, Ivy League colleges, when it comes to finals and midterms, guess what they actually do? They study. <laughs> they actually go and study. Yeah. So they're not coming to the bars. So midterms come and it's like, wow, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's nobody here. And then I'm thinking, okay, the summer's coming soon. And Ivy League st students, they're not from New York. They're from all over the country. So when the summer comes, they go back home. So now my customer base is going to go back to whatever city and state they're actually from. So how, I, how am I going to make it over the summer not even being able to cover my overhead, my employee oh my insurance, the food I still have to buy because you can't do like pay as you go. Like you have to buy the food. And then when they come, you know what I'm saying? You can't just say, okay, we're going to have 50 people in here today. Let's go make a run to Restaurant Depot and go buy 30 <laughs> pounds of hamburger meat. Restaurant Depot. <laughs> you know so there's all these things that I, I told myself, I said, you know what? I don't know if I'm ready to, 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 to play that risk and play that hand because if I keep this thing going or if I keep my equity state going into the summer and I'm not having customers come to the restaurant, I could lose everything that I spent right. you know, the last few years up in real estate. And so it was kind of like that thing where I just kind of had to look myself in the mirror and say, are, are you going to let your ego take over and make it seem like you're this big businessman that can never fail? Or are you going to know, like when Kenny Rogers said, sometimes you got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him, exactly. know when to run. Yep. I said, you know what? I'm going to talk to my partners and see if they want to buy this equity stake back from me, <laughs> you know, and let me just get out of here and break even. And that's what I did. I sold it back to them. I broke even. I got out of there. And I, I, I just didn't, I didn't feel that it would be a smart risk to see how that summer could go. If that summer went good, then yeah, I would have made a lot of money. But yeah. if bad, I would have literally been broke and would have start, had to start everything from scratch. And I'm not in love with the sports bar business that I'm in love with real estate. So this is not a passion of mine that I'm willing to take that gamble on with. So I said, you know what, let me just break in, break even, get out of here. And, and you know, we'll uh, figure this out the next go around, which that opportunity came around. Um, a former client of mine, we became really, really close. His cousin has a liquor license in Florida because he owns a wine store and sells to restaurants. And about two weeks ago, he said he won the partner. I get 80% control of the liquor license revenues and stuff like that. And uh, so, yeah, so we're going to see if we can get that together. Man, <laughs> but that's, the, that's very, very uh, re remarkable, but it's a good insight. Cause uh, that's, that's actually one of the questions I always have when I'm dining. Like I, I mean, I do this a lot, and, and I think this is why it's interesting because I've heard this in the last year or so, and maybe you could touch on this, but I heard the brick, brick and mortar is not going anywhere. However, which is interesting because you don't see that because you're looking at Amazon, et cetera, right? So it's not going anywhere, but at the same time, like, you know, you'll be here like in New York, you'll be a World Trade Center or whatever, or the, the, the mall, Oculus, and it's like, it'll be a high-end store, and they'll be like, two or three people really buy it. And you're thinking like, man, like what's the overhead of like them actually, like if someone buys one person, does it really cover that person's full shift? Like I'm always thinking about these numbers and I'm thinking like hearing it from you, um, it kind of, it justifies just that. Like you gotta, there's a lot that goes in, especially food. Like if we go back to food, forget retail, the food for me is the waste. I just, I can't imagine cooking stuff and then 
doesn't get eaten, it's getting thrown out. Yep. Uh, it's just chef per hour they cooked it. Damn. It got thrown out, so it can turn to a money pit really quick. <laughs> wow. All right, cool. So, so that was it. So, in other words, I guess your key takeaway is just know it's. It goes back to what Warren Buffett says: just know what you're. You know, you don't invest in anything that you don't know, right? Uh, pretty, stick to the core. Uh, so, uh, what do you think is the worst advice you've ever received? Um, the worst advice uh, that that you know you can be self-made. You know, um, mm. because, because if we're just honest, there, there's even the people that we deem to be self-made, there's no way that you do something on your own. Like, there's no way. Preach, man. Preach, preach. Every step of the way has to involve somebody somewhere in the chain, in the link. And so I think some of the worst advice that I got was, it was from a a close family friend when I was younger, when I was about 21, when I was kind of making it known that I wanted to get into business. And they were telling me, they were like, yeah, you got to be self-made. You got to be independent, man. You do, do it all on your own. You don't need nobody. You can just do it on your own. And like, you know, that's how you be a boss. And at the time, that sounded good. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a boss, man. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to come up on my own. And then, <laughs> and then slowly you start realizing that that's not even a tangible way to success. It's not like there, there's, not even, there's not even a path that's even forged in that mentality of thinking. Because, I mean, our employees, we hire employees to do the things that we can't do. Exactly. So it's like, so just by default, to be successful, you cannot be self-made. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, you know why I love that so much, Tosin, is is because I, and I want to talk about this because a lot of our listeners are either investors or entrepreneurs, right? And I think there's this taboo idea that oh an entrepreneur we're not corporate but like you're missing the point that when an entrepreneur builds a big enough business they become corporate because there's so much involved you're scaling your team so it's this interesting circle that like some entrepreneurs are running away from corporate fine that's fine you know to each his own but at the same time there's this idea that it's kind of like you know you know, you don't, that word. No, if you want to run a real business, a big like hedge fund, like how do you think those guys are getting up there? It's you're running a corporation because you need so much, again, employees, knowledge, expert, subject matter expertise. It could be a lawyer on site, general counseling. It could be, I mean, you name it, accountant. What are you going to do? All of those by yourself? What you going to run through? (laughs) What you're talking about is structure. It's structure. It's a system. It's a systematized organization of people who come together for one collective goal. Let's build, Joe. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's that's what it is. So that I'm glad you said that. I just wanted to bring that home because I think that's that's one of my favorite answers, to be honest, of of the the worst advice. Don't get caught up in that. I want to be my own boss. I think you want to be you want to own you want to be in control, which is one thing you touched on. How can we buy the block? How can we own it? Uh, but you don't want to be your own boss. I mean, you want to be the boss, maybe, sure, but you want to own it. You want to own the structure up and down. I mean, maybe I'm I'm speaking for myself, but uh, I think I think that's a that's a great great lesson, man. That's that's great. Uh, look, you talked about a lot of people in your life. Uh, you know, family mentors. Uh, you know, and as we segue into this last part of the part of the show, but what is I guess one um maybe one most influential person that maybe sticks out to you that, that oh, oh, that's easy. 
that's he, it's my grandfather, may he rest in peace. That's my grandfather. Rest in peace. Um, when I was in Nigeria, me and him spent a lot of time together. That's beautiful, man. Very, very close. And he became um, more like my father than my grandfather. He's probably the uh, person in my family that I was the closest to in connection to yeah. where I could say whatever was on my mind. I could ask any question. Um, even when he would discipline me, he would never do it in a way that would push me away, you know? And um, he used to always tell me, like, whenever I would be dropping the ball on certain things, mm-hmm. you know, he would always say, he's like, Tosin, you know, we look alike. We resemble each other. But, you know, your brain doesn't resemble mine. And so that was his way of, like, taking a stab to say, you got to be smart too, Tosin. You got to be smart. He's like, you got to be smart. And so he's like, you know, you're not really taking your school seriously and, you know, your grades aren't the best. And he wasn't really more of, you know, he, he, he wasn't necessarily wanting me to bring home A's. He was just like, but, yo, I know you're not even, like, trying to take anything seriously. And he, he kept on trying to say that, like, being able to solve these problems in class you're going to be using that same part of your brain when you're trying to solve problems in business when you get older. Because my grandfather was a businessman. In the 70s, he owned a travel agency, and he was one of the first people that was um, organizing travel trips for people from Africa that were flying on the Concorde, back when the Concorde was, was out back back in the day. Wow. And so um, he had been to over 80 countries. You know, He fought in uh, World War II um, on the side of the wow. British. And so um, you know, just his... His, um, his genuineness and, and just the way that he came, the way that he loved me in a very um, honest and masculine way, but not toxic masculinity. Oh, man, that right there has carried me in life through so many things, just that relationship. So, yeah, I would say it's my grandfather, man. I have his name tattooed, tattooed on my wrist. And That's beautiful, yeah, man. He, 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 he was a very special, special, just individual, just special individual. That's, that's, I love hearing that, man. We, we definitely need, need a lot of more of that impact in, in our community. So I, I love hearing that. That's, that's fantastic. Um, listen, man, we're going to do a little, little switch up real quick. Uh, the rapid questions are, I only give you a few earlier. So the rapid fire questions, you got to think on your feet real quick. I, I want to hear a little bit about your mind, but tell us about your favorite book. Uh, favorite book is The Corner Office by Adam Bryant. Ooh, have not heard of that. My man, I got what? I read a lot too. <laughs> it's a New York Times bestseller. I think oh. he actually used to be a journalist at the New York Times. That book came out, I believe, like 2009-ish, 2010-ish. It's about it's about how how to run company culture in a corporate environment. Mm, perfect. Well, make sure you include that in the show notes. Uh, the best habit that serves you every day. Um, waking up when I'm no longer tired. Waking up when you're no longer tired. Mm, that's so in, in a getting adequate rest. Yeah, yes, yes. Some people say, oh, you got to wake up at 5 a.m. every morning. Yeah. No, you need to wake up when your body is resting and ready to start moving. So if that's 9 a.m., if that's 10 a.m., like you need accurate rest because if you're tired, it, to, to me, if I'm tired, it, you I can't function. Yeah. Man. I, yeah, I could go 12 hours, but I'll be productive for two of them because I'm tired. Ooh, I just posted that on my on my story today because you guys know I'm big on, on the real estate experiment. And a lot of it is, is hacking personal development. I love personal development. And uh, I, yeah, I think one of the things that we think we're, we're, we're busy, but we're not being productive. And um, 
I'm, I'm very big on trying to tap into efficiency. And it's so true, man. Anytime I've ever slept in, I'm like way more productive than when I try to push through. And I think you take away is just preparation. Go to sleep early. That's my biggest thing, man. And we've been, we've been team, I've been team no sleep for too long. And that's just, it doesn't serve you well. I know a lot of entrepreneurs out here grinding, but health is, health is everything. It'll help you optimize. So, so thanks for sharing that, man. Look at what the man is doing, man. He preaches what he practices. So good for you, man. Um, best tools that helps you excel throughout your day. It could be anything. It could be application. It could be an Excel. It could be anything. Um, best tool, that would be my e- I guess having my email on my phone. Email on your phone. I can check it like a text messages. Like, I'm that person that by the end of the day, my email, my inbox has to be at everything's ready. It has to be at zero. I oh, can't- stop. You're yeah. sick. Good yeah. for you, man. I, I have my like assistant clean it up all the time. I can't do it. You know what it is? Because I'm always trying to learn from these marketers. And once these marketers got you, yeah, they yeah, got yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. I'm like trying to like learn from like copy and stuff like the Russell, you know, Russell Brunson, Grant Cardone, they're like blasting you like three emails. I can't keep up. I have to have like a, like a, like a, like maybe like a bootleg email for those guys, man. Like anyways, anyways, good for you for doing that. Um, You touched on this early, but let me be very clear. Would you rather have one 300 unit apartment building or three apartments of a hundred units? One 300 unit apartment building. And, and, and the reason being is that um, there's a there's a, a strategy called cost segregation. Mm-hmm. Cost segregation. I want everybody watching this to Google it. Right. Cost right. segregation, as I just learned from a uh, a tax advisor, a tax mentor, who mm-hmm. I was graceful enough to fly down to Atlanta from New York to sit me down, is that when you own investment property, you can write off. You know, the cabinets, the ceiling fans, the flooring, the light switches, the electrical outlets, you can write off all of those things to the tune of what your capital gain would have been so that you can, in, in, in a sense, pay zero taxes. And he explained to me that this is what like the Trumps are doing and all those political people that we villainize for not paying any taxes or whatever. But he was saying that, you know, because people hate the person, they make it seem like everything that they're doing is immoral. When it's like, no, that's in the tax code. Like that's yeah, yeah, no, there's 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 so many loop like, and you can't even call them loopholes because they're legal. But there's so many advantages that, and we have to understand that the government. Remember, a lot of the officials who were in power were also investing in real estate, so they made the rules favorable to them. So there's just so many things like we talk about 1031 exchange, uh, forced depreciation, or in this case, it sounds like, and I'm going to look into it myself too, because I'm not as familiar, but I know there's this other one. It's, it's like the opposite of like, uh, uh, I guess it's like, you know, we know that real estate's a depreciating asset. So I don't know if it's got this like forced depreciation. I don't know if that's, yeah. yeah. I don't know if it falls underneath that. But not we can necessarily, not necessarily. Okay. There's a, a way to speed up depreciation because yeah. when you're writing off stuff on your property, you're kind of writing off the depreciation. So mm-hmm. you can, so typically for commercial property, it's 27 and a half years. Yeah. So with cost segregation, you can speed that up to like five or seven years and take advantage of so many things to the point that even any income that you're making outside of real estate that has nothing to do with real estate, you can also pay zero taxes on that as well. Once you hit a real estate portfolio that meets certain guidelines. Now, I'm still learning this, but it's under the cost segregation, which is in the tax code. It's perfectly legal. My so man. You can Google somebody who does cost segregation, get a free consultation from them or take their course or go to their seminar. There's 
tens of thousands of wealthy people that are using this strategy, but it's not a popular one. We always hear, hear 1031 exchange and, you know, all these things writing off your capital gains, but there's other, there's, there's a lot of other stuff in the tax code that can benefit you too, <laughs> you yes. know? So, um, so yeah, that's something that I'm, I'm um, trying to really dig deep into and see, you know, in what ways I can benefit from it and, and I do be able to tell people like you and, and your audience and share the knowledge because that's yeah no I and I can't wait to have a continuous conversation with that because uh, I'm a big fan of, of people always um, looking to educate themselves and that's the only way to continue to learn more is stay humble and continue to be a sponge but but yeah and and don't sleep on that guys because there's a lot of single family there's a lot of advantages for a lot of you know yeah. individuals who we don't even realize right? it's not it's just in general right so uh, self manage or outsource outsource okay uh if you had to have one superpower in real estate what would it be to be able to negotiate every deal at 20 percent arv <laughs> just stop at just stop at 20 percent. just say whatever it is that you want man make it work but no that's awesome that's that's a good one right there, I, there. yeah just take <laughs> it from there just set you up for the alley right that's awesome uh if you uh, could describe um, a successful investor in one word, what would that word be? Resourceful. Mm. Resourceful. Um, it's not about you knowing how to do everything. It's about being able to get in contact or put together the people that know how to get that deal closed. And so like, that's, that's the most important thing. You know, like a head coach, right? Mm-hmm. Not on the field running the ball, but when they win the Super Bowl, he gets a ring too. My man. You know what I'm saying? Should, should just drop the mic right now, man. Shoot. <laughs> the head coach can't throw that ball 50 yards. Yeah. He's going to tell everybody, this is what I need you guys to do. Yep. And that's they do it, and then we all win. That's so, a fact. That's a fact. That's a fact. <laughs> um, bridging, bridging the gap. Uh, I like to talk about, this is kind of a, uh, maybe more of a selfish personal question, but y'all, you community, you guys got to listen as well to this. I always like to find out what, where people or, or, or need things to be optimized. You know, my backgrounds in, in you know, technology as well and, and, and just finding solutions for entrepreneurs. So, you know, if you could make one thing easier in your day-to-day, what do you think that would be? Um, I think it would be managing the, like, communi- managing the communication with my leads. Your leads? Yeah, like, finding better ways to communicate with them. Cause as you said, right, you get emails from all these marketers. What do you do? You just clean them out. So they're not really, they're not really connecting to you, Yeah. but they're spending money on those emails. Yeah. You know, so finding a better way to, in this world that we're in now, what is finding the next way that's going to have that connection? Like how in 1990, you would read every single email you ever got. I'm, I'm sorry. In like 1999, you would read yeah. every. Like, oh, it was fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every, now you may get a hundred emails a day and you're, you'll just highlight all of them and delete them. So, yeah. find out, you know, is it, is it SMS? Is it through text message? Yeah. Is it through voicemail? Like, finding out what is the best way to have real engagement with the leads when you have mm. an exorbitant amount of leads. Because right now I'm sitting on one million leads, emails, phone numbers of real estate agents around this country. And I don't know how to, in a meaningful way engage all of them just because the volume is so high, (laughs) you know? And so that is something that uh, if there, if one of your viewers has a, has a solution, I would love for them to reach out to me. For sure. Well, make sure you have your your contact in in the show notes. 
and shoot, CC and BCC me in there too, man. This was my question. <laughs> no, man, that's that's beautiful, man. That's awesome. So, and with that being said, man, uh, I mean, where can listeners find out more about you and and your network, what you're doing, man? Like, so they can find me, of course, on Instagram. It's just my name, Tosin underscore Oduale. Um, also on Facebook, um, for the most part, um, uh, my LinkedIn is probably where you'll be able to get the best information on me. And I, I respond on LinkedIn pretty quickly as well. Nice. Media sites. Um, I did have a website. It's down right now because we're revamping some things. I had to take some new photos. I'm trying to, nice. you know, trying to spruce it up a little bit. So it's just not. Can't wait. Can't wait. We'll, we'll make sure we'll update that whenever it's up, man. Cause I want to show a lot of love to, to, your, to, to, to what you're doing and for my community to find out who you are, man. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be learning from you for That's a fact. And that's for sure. Uh, and I want to continue yeah, to do that. Anything I ever learned, I'll, I'll get, I give away, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. not in order. So if I find some, Hey, I'll text you. Hey, I just figured something out. You got 20 minutes to talk on the phone. <laughs> for sure, man. That'd be great. And, and, and one thing I always say, man, I'm a super connector. Some, some call me that. Uh, but you know, I run, you know, I, if I run into somebody, you know, in my network and in, and there's one person that you're looking for that I could make an introduction. Like, Oh yeah, I just met Tosin. I should connect you. Who, who'd that person be? And who would they, you know, and if you don't have a name, like what would they look like or what kind of person would you be looking for an introduction with? Somebody who's, who's really good at digital marketing. Hmm. I have, I have a plug for you, man. Yeah, Get that, offline. Yeah, that I think okay. I'm, Backing in my own business right now is that yeah. I've hired marketing companies many times and they're just not driving traffic the right way. There's just yep. really no conversion. So yeah. I want to find that person who is like, this is what they do. Like they're that guy at that. Okay. I got, I got somebody for you. Um, no problem. No doubt. So listen, man, this was uh, whew, man. I can't thank you enough for all the value you you gave to me and the community, the listeners out here, man, we're going to love this one. I'm, I'm going to be chopping up a lot of your videos, man. I'm sharing it with people. Seriously. I think we covered the whole ground and um, I don't ever put a limit on these things. We, we could talk for hours. I know that's for sure. Uh, but man, thank you for reaching out. And, and, and this was mutual. I mean, I can't wait to, to, to have an opportunity to dig more into your world. And, and that's what it's all about. We come into the lab to learn and then form strategic partnerships down the road. Uh, so, you know, as I always say, um, Let's build, and we can't wait to check out some of your growth. And uh, congratulations on a lot of, of what you've done today, man. We look forward to having you again for sure, man. Tell tell us you're gonna come back, man. Of course, sure. man. <laughs> anything that I can never do for you to kind of just repay the favor. I do have a web series called The Daily Hustle, where I just it's just basically the cameras following me around as I'm getting deals done, the good, nice. the bad, the ugly. But I also have sit downs with other uh, other investors and entrepreneurs. Nice own hustle or grind that may be different from mine. Yeah, yeah. For you to be on my platform. Oh man, that's no doubt, no doubt. We'll definitely talk about that uh, offline for sure, man. But I, anything we do collaborate, we'll definitely make sure I blast that out to the people and make sure that all my listeners go out, listeners and viewers, man. Make sure we're revamping the YouTube channel, so you guys go check that out because uh, it's good to see the us in flesh. Uh, chopping it up in the lab so on that note thank you for joining man and uh just like that we out if you're a real estate professional a real estate agent a real estate investor a lender a multifamily syndicator a contractor you name it and you're looking to grow your online presence but you have no idea how to get started or simply don't have the time 
at Invested Talent, we help real estate professionals extend their current business to social media. Why is this important? Without this, you wouldn't be listening to this show and your own host, Ruben Kanya, and his team would not have done deals they've done today. As a matter of fact, social media has helped us keep this show together, which now exceeds a billion dollars worth of real estate from our guests collectively. That's right. Our reputation, opportunities, partnerships, and most importantly, real estate transactions were started directly from social media. If you're a real estate professional and you lack an existence on a media platform, Invested Talent can help. Simply go to investedtalent.com forward slash social media and make sure you click the get in touch button to get in touch with our team. Again, that's investedtalent.com forward slash social media and get in touch with our team. You focus on being the brand and we'll help you build it. Now, if you know anything about the lab, you know that we like to give practical advice. So if you feel that this podcast was of any value to you, please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes by going directly to the podcast app. From the show's page, scroll all the way down and leave us a review. If you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe by clicking the subscribe button and leave us a comment. Lastly, and most importantly, share this episode with a friend you feel will benefit this episode the most. Remember, there's a you and I in build. Let's build, y'all.